Good to have you here this morning as we worship the Lord together. Um, I uh, was a little detained. If you are a guest and you're here, uh, so I wasn't here right at the beginning, there is in the, on the bulletin a little flap. So that is not just for guests. So on the backside, it's for guests to fill out. But there's also information there if you are a regular attender and you would like us to be praying for you or you have some concerns or uh, just would like to have some information on a small group or something, that's also for you. So that can be put in the offering plate as well. I'd invite you to... Uh, Join me as we look to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we have just been singing of some of the great truths that are ours through Jesus Christ. And I pray uh, that those truths would wash over our hearts and souls. I ask that your spirit would work as we look into your word, that you would take those truths that we are exposed to in, in your word, and you would rivet them to our our hearts, uh, cement them in our minds, and use them to transform us. For some to bring us into a relationship with you, Heavenly Father, through your Son, Jesus, and others of us who have a relationship with you, Lord, to deepen and grow it, all for your glory and all for the gain of your kingdom. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. In life, there are lots of tests, and all of us have tests that we are going through throughout life that we really don't want to fail. I just had a friend of ours in our home a few weeks ago, and he had gone through and taken a series of tests in order to become certified in selling real estate, or no, actually insurance it was, it's insurance. He was uh, taking all these tests so he can sell life insurance and health insurance and blah, 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 insurance. In order to get into college, you have to take an ACT or an SAT, and if you really want to get scholarships and stuff, you want to do well on those ACTs and SATs. To get a job, you fill out an application, you go to an interview. Once you have a job, you have a a performance review, and you go to that test. And if you want to be on a sports team, you have to try out. And if you want to be in a musical spot, you have to try out. And so you take a test, you take take a test. And none of us wants to come up short. None of us wants to come to the end of the test and find out, oops, didn't quite make it. No, we want to pass the test, whether you're a parent, whether you're a grandparent, whether you're an employee, whether you're a spouse, whether you're a student, whether you're an athlete, whether you are a musician, the tests we take, nobody wants to be disappointing. Nobody wants to fall short. Nobody wants to not quite measure up. Nobody wants to disappoint the people that they're taking the test for or themselves for whom they're taking the test. We have tests and we don't want to fall short. It seems to me that we spend a lot of time and we're, we're concerned about the tests that have to do with our earthly preoccupation. But how concerned are we with the test that has to do with our eternal destination? We want to pass those tests that have to do with what's going on in life, but do we really want to pass the test so that we know that we have eternal life? That's the topic that's being discussed in the book of Hebrews in chapter 4 that we begin and enter into this morning. Jesus put it pretty well in Mark chapter 8 verse 36. He said something that's very powerful, but not often penetrating. He said this, 
For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he loses his soul? What does it profit us? Well, obviously the answer is nothing. And this morning, uh, what I want us to look at and what is latent in the text is that if, if we will be willing to heed a couple of different warnings on the uh, road signs, these warning signs on the, the roadway that leads to eternal life, we heed these signs, follow the signs, then we'll end up in our destination. We won't fall short. We won't come up short. We won't come up missing the mark. We won't miss out what God has for us. And so I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. We're beginning chapter 4 as we march through the book of Hebrews. And in light of the dire consequences of unbelief that we've been talking about in chapter 3, chapter 4 contains two important instructions to keep us from falling short. And both of those instructions have to do with being warned against the danger of unbelief, the necessity of genuine faith. I'm in chapter 4, I'm going to read through verse 13. Therefore, let us fear, lest, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have good news, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has thus said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who have formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a, day, a certain day today, saying through David, after a long time, just as has been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, for if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. There remains therefore a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall, fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and divides the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow and is able to judge the thoughts and intents of the heart and there is no creature hidden from his sight but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now, there's a lot there about rest and about how to enter the rest and what it means if we fall short of entering that rest and how we can keep from doing that. First, we see the, the first of these two important instructions, these road signs on the way to rest. And the first one is this, that we're called to fear lest we fall short of God's rest. This is verses 1 through 10. The professing Jewish believers to whom the writer is initially making this plea were tempted to abandon Judaism or abandon Christianity and go back to Judaism. It's like, hey, they were being pressured by Rome. They were being pressured by their friends. They were cut off from their families. And so it's like, well, it's just be a lot easier if we just kind of did what was safe and go back to this religious system of Judaism. 
Previously in Hebrews, the writer has appealed to the superiority of Christ. Because Jesus is a superior prophet, because Jesus is a superior or superior to the angels, and because he's superior to Moses, he says, no, trust in Jesus even though it costs you. Even though it's not comfortable, it's worth it because it's really what's true. And so he sought to deter them from falling away back into Judaism. These are professing believers. They hadn't fully embraced the truths of Christianity, but they were coming along with the crowd. So it would be comparable to folks today who are in the church. They come into church. You know, they kind of know the church language. They kind of do the church thing, but they really haven't bought in. They haven't really waved the white flag of surrender to Jesus and said, I'm letting you be the Lord of my life. I'm going to turn from my own self-directed life, and I'm going to trust in Jesus fully. And I know it's going to cost me, but I'm willing to do that. No, so those are the people that he's talking to primarily and in that day, which translates into the people I've just described in our day. And so in chapter 3, verses 7 through 19, to further deter them, he said, here's the consequence of unbelief. If you disobey me, you result, the result's in no rest for you. And so he uses the dire consequences of Israel's past unbelief as an incentive for his readers then and us today to be believing and not unbelieving because he doesn't want us to fall into it. And so his call to fear comes in two parts. First, we're given the command in verse 1, therefore, let us fear lest we fall short. The therefore continues the warning. Points us back to the warning that he's given us in chapter 3, verses 7 and 12 and 14. If you look at chapter 3, uh, verse 7, he says, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, and then verse 8, do not harden your heart. Therefore, because if you do harden your heart in unbelief, you miss out on rest. Therefore, now, I want you to look ahead with me. Don't miss out. You should fear. Verse 1, the lesson of the past applies to the future. The lesson of the past applies to the future. God's punishment of unbelief in the past will be carried forward into the present in the sense that it will mean you don't enter His rest either if you don't believe today. So unbelief in the past, so the, the lesson from the past has its relevance for the present. Okay, It's incentive. Then we're given the cause. Why should we fear? That's a good question. I mean, why, why should we fear? And what does fear mean? There's two contrasting consequences. As we walk through the text, what the writer does is he gives you two different, us two different consequences, and the, those both have to do with whether we believe or we don't believe. Two different consequences, contrasting consequences, that stress the genuineness, the importance of genuine faith. First, rest is denied to the unbelieving. Look at the word fear. The word fear means terror. At first I was reading through this, you know, sometimes you read through the Bible and the word fear means reverence. So I think, oh, we're supposed to revere God. No, this is terror. It's the fear, the terror that's incited by the thought that what happened to them might happen to me. So their unbelief led to disobedience, which kept them from entering rest. My unbelief which leads to disobedience, will result in my 
not entering God's rest. It's the fear that's incited by the thought that what happened to them might happen to me. I want you to see this picture of the uh, devastation in the uh, recent uh, hurricane that went through uh, the south. If we have it, I think we have it, yeah. Okay, so people are told before the hurricane, you can't see it if you're sitting over there, sorry. Uh, we're, we are going to get a new screen someday. It's coming, a uh, projector, okay, it's coming. People were told to evacuate, right? Get out of there. It's not safe. People, ah, yeah, no big deal. I've ridden through lots of hurricanes before. Yeah, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, tough guys. A lot of people died. A lot of people had some devastation and hurt. What? This, this should incite fear. That what happened to them could happen to future generations. Or it should incite fear enough to move away. Or not rebuild or whatever. But we're stubborn people. The writer of Hebrews says, fear. Let what happened to them, not entering into the promised land because of their unbelief, incite fear in you that what happened to them could happen to you. If you, in your unbelief and disobedience, continue, you will not enter into God's rest. And he doesn't want that for them and doesn't want it for us. It could happen to us the way that it happened to them. That's what he's talking about. Authentic believers, if you're here this morning and you're truly trusting in Jesus, you don't need to fear. You don't need to have that need to have that fear. First John chapter 4, verse 18 says that perfect love casts out fear. But if you're on the fence and you're playing games with God, then there's a reason to fear. There's a danger that's ahead. And, and God is not being mean-spirited, he's being loving and offering this warning to those of us who may be just playing games with him. He's giving us a chance. Verse 2 elaborates on why fear should grip the unbelieving. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. If you get a prescription from the doctor... And the doctor calls a prescription into the pharmacy, and the pharmacy fills a prescription, and you go and you pick up the prescription, but you don't take the pills. What's the benefit? Nada. Zip. None. I met my wife in Branson, Missouri. In Branson, Missouri, we were both on a summer mission project, and we were, as a group, the group of us were offered a free pass to the amusement park in Branson, Missouri, Silver Dollar City. Everybody on the group, there's free tickets. All you have to do is come up and get your ticket and you can go to Silver Dollar City. Guess what? If you didn't go get the ticket, it was of no value to you. If you got the ticket, you didn't go to Silver Dollar City and use the ticket, it was of no value to you. What the writer of Hebrews says is, folks, they had... The good news preached to them. It did not profit them. You have had the good news preached to you. Will it profit you? Now, he didn't exactly say that. I'm saying that's the application of it, okay? The Jewish people, what, what is the good news they heard? That would be a good question to ask. Because it's not often that we see that term used of the Israelites in the Old Testament. They had the good news preached to them. Well, what good news did they have? 
Um, in fact, it's interesting because some of you may receive a, a question after the service today because some of the guys are asking people in the church, what does the good news mean? So here's the good news they had preached to them. Galatians chapter 3, verse 8. I want you to look at that uh, verse on the screen. It says this, something about Abraham. Okay, Abraham had the good news preached to him. Scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations shall be blessed in you. So in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, in the Abrahamic covenant, God promised Abraham that from him would be a land, descendants, and blessings, and the blessings would come to all nations. Did you know that the gospel was preached in the Old Testament? That's what it says here. The Abrahamic covenant looked forward to Christ. And those who believed were justified. People say, well, how were people saved in the Old Testament? The same way people are saved in the New Testament. By faith. They looked ahead to the work of Christ in the same way that we look back on the work of Christ. God promised them that through Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Romans chapter 4, verse 3, it says that of, uh, for the, what does the scripture say? And Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. This is a quote of Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. He believed God and that's how he was reckoned, how he was declared as being righteous. Only by faith is Abraham, only by faith is anyone declared a believer. Hearing the good news without believing the good news doesn't profit us a bit. Didn't profit those in Moses' day. It didn't profit the people in the first century. It doesn't profit us today. The good news preached to us today is the accomplishment of the promise given to Abraham in Christ that through him all the nations of the earth should be blessed. Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. I want you to see that one if we have it. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. It's through faith in the work of Jesus Christ that anyone is brought into the family of God. And this we saw last week. Hebrews chapter, uh, a couple weeks ago, in Hebrews chapter 2. I want you to look, if you have your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 2. Look at verse 9. But we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The righteous Jesus might taste death for everyone. The righteous died for the unrighteous so that all who would believe and accept his death as a payment for their sins would be given righteousness. His, our sin on him, his righteousness on us, by faith. That's the message of the gospel. It was promised to Abraham and all of his descendants, and it is promised to us as well. And so when it says, this is the good news that they heard, but it didn't profit them because they didn't believe, that's the message to us as well. We must hear this message and believe. Just as the Israelites in the Old Testament needed to know that he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and that circumcision is of the heart, not of the flesh, so too. Everyone who comes into the church and hears the message that Jesus Christ died on the cross 
And his death is the payment for your sin, but you must accept by faith that his death paid the price that you paid, and only when you accept it will it benefit you. That's the deal. It doesn't matter what church you go to. It doesn't matter if you are a member of the church. It doesn't matter if you've been baptized, catechized, confirmed, or whether you give money in the offering plate, how much money you give in the offering plate, whether you go on a short-term mission trip, whether or not you do service in the church, whether or not you're one of the church leaders or not. Those are all good things. But unless you hear the message of the gospel, unless you understand that you are a sinner destined to an eternity apart from God and only by His mercy and grace that He sent His Son Jesus and you put your trust in Jesus' death as the death you deserve, then and only then will you be delivered. Then and only then will it profit you. Otherwise, it's true that there will be many people that say, after they die, Lord, Lord. And then they'll list all their great accomplishments, things I just mentioned. And he'll say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's Matthew chapter 7. I'm not making it up, okay? Isn't that a sad indictment? That there will be so many people who have done so many good things in the name of Jesus but have never fully embraced and surrendered their life to Christ that they will be in hell. That's reason to fear. I don't want to be there. Remember being in Daytona Beach, Florida on the happy bus. We went to do evangelism on the beach. And heaven is a wonderful place filled with glory and grace. I want to see my Savior's face. Heaven is a wonderful place. I want to go there. And then we'd sing that all the way to the beach. You know? And then we'd walk up and down the beach and try to share Jesus with people. Because I don't want to go to hell. I don't want anybody else to go to hell. And I will be guilty. If I don't join the writer of Hebrews and declare to people everywhere that we fear lest there be a promise of entering into his rest and we miss out because we heard the gospel but we didn't respond to it. It's denied to the unbelieving but it is enjoyed by those who believe. That fact is expressed in verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest. Simple enough. Only those who accept, and so then he explains it, and he gives several facts I want you to grasp about this rest. What is this rest that we enter into? It's explained several. First of all, only those who accept by faith the good news of Christ's death in their place enter into that rest. Look at verse 3. He says, for we who have believed enter that rest. That's the key. Belief, you enter the rest. Disbelief prevents rest. Belief provides rest, okay? And so he says, those who believe enter that rest. What's that rest? Keep reading. And I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So that rest that believers enter into is my rest, which God entered into. We enter into God's rest, which I first and foremost believe refers to our salvation. 
are entering into a relationship with God, the rest that comes from being in a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. He quotes Psalm 95. Now, if you're reading verse 3, it seems a little bit abrupt because you say, well, he's trying to prove that if you believe, you enter rest. So why does he quote Psalm 95 verse 11 here in verse 3, which says the opposite? As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Because he's using the positive to, or he's using the negative to prove the positive. Those who don't believe don't enter rest. Conversely, he didn't go on to say this, but he means this. Those who do believe enter my rest. So it is belief that is the catalyst to rest. Since unbelief prevents rest, belief provides it. Secondly, Believers enter into the same rest that God enjoys. I thought this was a kind of a aha moment for me when I was studying this. It's like, did you know that when we enter rest, we enter into the same rest that God enters into? Look at verse 3. He says, for we who believed entered that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And then he goes on to describe what that rest is. He quotes Genesis 2-2 in verse 4. For he has thus said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Why did he do that? What he's doing, I think, is that he quotes Genesis 2-2 in support of the claim that he made at the end of verse 3. Notice the end of verse 3. He says, after God rested or after he created the end of the world, he says that from the foundation of the world, when he finished from the foundation of the world, that's when God rested. At the end of the creation day, God rested. And what he says is that when we believe, in verse 3, we enter into that rest, we enter into is my rest, which God entered into, and when did God enter into his rest? On the seventh day, after he had created everything. So that the my rest that he quotes from Psalm 95, mentioned in chapter 4, verse 3, is the rest that God entered into after creation. It's the rest that God promises and into which we enter is the same rest that he entered into. It's the completion. It's the satisfaction. It's finished. It's over. There's no more striving, no more working. It's over. Now, it's not a rest of inactivity. It's a rest of enjoyment. I think it's in John 5, our father works and I work. He continues to work. God's not working. God didn't just throw the world into being and let it spin and let things happen. God is still actively working. But this is a comp- completion, a satisfaction. It's a return to where we were before the fall. End of creation story, right? God looked and he said, what? It's good. It's good. Everything's good. Adam and Eve are in the garden, and it's good. There's no death, there's no pain, there's no sorrow, there's no suffering, there's no confusion, there's no hostility, there's no conflict, there's no loneliness, there's no emptiness, there's no hopelessness, there's no lawlessness. Yeah, then what happened? Genesis 3. And Adam and Eve decided to trust in Satan rather than in God. And once they did, immediately they knew guilt. And they knew shame. 
And they knew loneliness, and they knew separation, and they knew rejection, and they knew lawlessness, and they knew emptiness, and they knew all sorts of purposelessness, and they knew that something wasn't right in their soul. God had created us to be in relationship with himself. And so when they did this, man became empty and aimless and lonely. And all of life is spent trying to fill the emptiness, satisfy the loneliness, complete and gain satisfaction in our souls. We know that, as Augustine says, that we are made for God, but we are restless until we find our rest in Him. We know this in our soul. And so we spend our lives, spin our wheels, trying to satisfy, find fulfillment, find completeness, find full joy, find purpose and meaning in life. I thought about these boys that we've referred to a few times that were caught in that cave in Thailand. And you've seen the stories and you've seen pictures of uh, these boys in the rescue operation. When you're in the cave, how do you think they felt? I think in the first, you know, when they first realized we were kind of trapped, they kind of like maybe panicked a little bit. But then, after a few days, you begin to panic. They were lonely. I'm sure they missed their families. I'm sure they were hopeless. We're, we're doomed. I'm sure they were restless. I'm sure there was agitation. In my thinking, it's kind of a picture of where mankind is after the fall. Cut off from God. Cut off from the relationship that we are intended to enjoy. And striving, working, seeking to restore it. All of the Bible story, the entire Bible, from Genesis 3 to Revelation 22, is a picture of God's attempt to bring man back into a right relationship with himself and restore the right relationship, the fullness, the satisfaction, the completeness, the rest that the writer of Hebrews talks about that they missed out on and that we can enjoy. It's a picture of what God has. And so what has God done? He's given us the Sabbath day as kind of a shadow of the substance of which Christ we have fulfilled truly in Christ. It's just a little bit of a taste of what it's supposed to be when we're restored back into right relationship with God to enjoy His rest, to enjoy safety and security and serenity. I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more life throws at me, the more I think, whew, yeah, I'm kind of waiting for that day of rest. Uh, not, not, not just because I'm tired, you know, not, not just inactivity, but you know, it's just like you're chasing from, you're running from pillar to post just to try to satisfy all these people that don't really care. You know, we're trying to buy bigger things and newer things and nicer things to impress people who don't care and we don't know. There's a better way. It's rest in Christ and that's what he points out to us. Faith in Christ brings us to an end of our striving where it should. Now, it doesn't always because we're not fully sanctified yet. We're not fully embracing the union with Christ, but it should free us from the striving to gain satisfaction. Oh, you know, if I just get this job, if I can just make this much money, if I can just have this car, if I just finish this project, now I'm guilty of this, if I can just finish this little thing in the remodeling project, then I'll, then okay, I'll just sit down and, and then I'll start thinking about all the other things that need to be done. Strive frees us from striving to gain other people's approval in order to know that we are 
satisfied in Christ. Frees us from trying to impress other people. Frees us from trying to gain approval and prominence. What a joy it is to know the safety and the serenity and the security of life in Christ. Paul said it in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. In Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form, and you are made complete in Him. In whom? In Christ. We're made complete in Christ. That's what he says in Colossians 2. And I quoted Augustine before, For you have formed us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. I find it really interesting that salvation was made available to the wilderness generation. Salvation was made available to them. But out of unbelief and disobedience, they rejected it. They missed out. And it's made, if they would have looked ahead and trusted in the Son... The third fact to consider is that about rest, as I've been talking about it, is it's a present spiritual reality. I like the way he began. It says if, if we, uh, he rested on the seventh day, F.F. Bruce says this, His rest continues still and may be shared by those who respond to his overtures with faith and obedience. Even though disobedience kept the wilderness generation from entering God's rest, the enduring rest that God offered them and us is still available. We can know it. We can know the rest that God provides. Notice the text says in verses 3 through 5 that uh, he made it, he repeated it. Verse 4, for he has thus said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works, and again, in this passage, they shall not enter his rest. In verse 6, since therefore it remains for the Sabbath day to, uh, uh, for some to enter it, and who formerly had the news preached to them and failed to enter it, he said, uh, again, he fixes a certain day today, and he's saying through David. So several generations after the wilderness generation, he says through David, hey, there's still a day today you can enter into his rest. It's still possible. It's still available. It remains for some to enter it, he says in verse 6. That means today. That means we can enter into his rest. And how do we enter into his rest? It's through belief. We receive that rest, and that's what it says today. For if Joshua had given them rest, I like this, why would he speak of another day? You see, Joshua couldn't give them rest. Moses couldn't give them rest. David couldn't give him rest. No human being can give us the rest we long for. Only God can give us that rest. And it comes through a relationship with him by means of faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Canaan, remember, okay, that's the story. Wilderness wanderings, wander around for 40 years, and they're trying to get into the promised land, right? They didn't go into the promised land because of their disobedience. Guess what? Canaan was only a picture of what God has for us in Christ. That's what rest is. It's a relationship with God through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. Finally, true rest is ultimately, finally, and fully future. It's a present reality that we haven't fully tapped into because it is the rest, the Sabbath day that the text talks about, the Sabbath day of the millennial rest. And our rest in eternity with God in heaven that will be the fullest and final and ultimate realization of what it means to be in relationship with Him through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. So we're called to fear. 
We're also called to fight. In verses 11 through 13, there's two parts to the call. We're given a mandate to be diligent to enter God's rest. Look at verse 11. Let us therefore... Now, again, we're doing Bible study here. So verse 1 begins how? Let us therefore. Verse 11 begins what? Let us therefore. Loose translation. He's continuing the argument. In light of the fact that you should fear, because if you don't fear and you disobey, you don't enter into his rest. Now I'm going to give you some more incentive for entering into his rest by believing. We're given a mandate to be diligent to enter into his rest. Therefore, further calls the genuine faith to genuine faith. In light of the disaster that unbelief brings, in light of the delight that belief brings, don't you think we should maybe take seriously the call to believe? Be diligent. Now, it's an interesting word, the word diligent, because it means to combine serious concern with quick action. I remember as a, a young boy, uh, my parents were having a, a bunch of people over to our house, okay, adult people, not a bunch of kids, just adult people, but the kids were in the basement. That's me and my two siblings. But my mom, you know, it was like Christmas time, and so my mom had some candles that were lit, and uh, they were having their uh, talking and eating hors d'oeuvres and stuff like that. And uh, somebody decided that they were going to pull the drapes because it got dark. And so they pulled the drapes. Well, the drapes, as they pulled them, went right over where the candles were lit. And the drapes went up in flames. And they went, the, the fire just went racing up the drapes. Immediately, my father and his friend, Richard Mainz, of whom I've talked about before, all 6'5", 320 pounds of him, they ripped the curtains down off of the curtain rod. Just, I mean, they just yanked it down, and they stomped out the fire. My dad has a size 12 foot, and Richard had about a 14, and it didn't take them long. Diligence. Concern, coupled with immediate action, is the picture that he gives. Concern. Make haste to secure the rest. Now you're saying, well, pastor, faith means it's not our works. I'm not saying it's a works deal. I'm saying it is to make sure deal. It's the Spirit of God that has to work and draw us to Himself, but we still have to respond. We still have to choose to accept the gift that God gives. And so He says, make sure you know that you are a child of God. Be diligent. That's the mandate. What motivates us? Two beautiful verses give the motivation and two powerful reasons. First of all, we're exposed by God's Word. Verse 12, For the Word of the Lord is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit. It is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Now, if you think about that, how do you divide the joint and the marrow? The thoughts and the intents. How do you divide that? I mean, you don't. But the Word of God is able to divide that which is humanly indivisible. Which says that we can't fool God. His Word exposes all that is fraudulent, all that is hypocritical, and all that is pretentious. 
So while you may think, as, 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 or we, as we sit in church, pretending to be a Jesus person, while we walk out and act like we are Jesus people, the Word of God goes, oh, not so much. The Word of God is able to discern and sort it through. And the Word of God is able to expose and dispose of all that is not true. And so it is a very powerful thing. We cannot hide our pretense behind coming to church, going to youth group, memorizing verses in Awana, or serving on a church board or a committee, or doing something for Jesus. We can't hide behind that and say that we are a Jesus person unless there's true and genuine faith in our soul. Secondly, we cannot escape God's eye. Verse 13. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Hmm. We cannot escape his eye. Open is interesting word because it was used in the pagan culture of two people who were wrestling, and the one person grabbed the other's throat and looked him in the eye. And the other use is if you took a sword of your enemy, your sword against your enemy who had been captured, and they were looking down, and you put the tip of the sword right under their chin and made them look you in the eye. The point is this. We are always face-to-face with God. I don't care what kind of a hole you crawl into or I crawl into. I don't care how dark it is, how obscure the place is. You can read Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your presence? If I go to the highest mountain, you're there. If I go to the depths of Sheol, behold, Lord, even there you are. I can't go as far as the east is from the west. I cannot hide. We cannot hide from God. We can fool all of the people some of the time and some of the people all the time. We can't fool God any of the time. Never. Be diligent to enter into this rest because the Word of God will parse even that which is unparsable. The eyes of God will see and do see even that which we think is hidden. So we may be playing games with God and we may have people fooled. Folks, God's not fooled. And he's who counts. And so my call to each of us here is to fear that lest we be unbelieving and disobedient, we would not enter his rest. And to fight so that we might enter into his rest. So that we might enter eternal rest and escape eternal ruin. In the words of Tillotson, he who provides for this life but takes no care for eternity is wise for a moment, moment, but a fool forever. If you're here this morning and you know that you're playing games with God, the Spirit of God is working in your heart and you know it. My prayer is that you would do business with Him. And in a moment, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray a, a prayer out loud and I'm going to ask you to say, if those words express the desire of your heart, you pray that prayer silently to the Lord, getting right with Him. 
so that you can say, I'm not playing any more games with God. I'm going to wave the white flag of surrender. I've been on the throne of my life. Now I'm going to yield over that throne to him fully and finally. And if you're here and you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then as you go through this week, I just want to encourage you to reflect on how blessed of a privilege it is to be a child of God and to be able to enjoy the rest that maybe you're not fully enjoying right now. That's another sermon, okay, or a series. But it's yours. It's, it's, it's yours. You're in union with Christ. And there is no reason to be in angst or being upset. He, he is in control, and he has control. He's got your back, and he's got your front. He's got your side. He's there. And relish that. And revel in it. And rejoice in it. So here's the deal. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, I'm going to bow, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask you to put your faith and your trust in Jesus. Do business with God. Because that's the warning of the text. Don't be unbelieving, but be believing, lest you harden your heart and you be cast into an eternity apart from God. Let's pray. Father, I pray right now. And Lord Jesus, if there's anyone here that knows that they're just playing games and they want to get it right with you, I just pray they would say something like this. Lord Jesus, I realize that I'm a messed up, fallen person who deserves your judgment and wrath. I confess my sin. I turn from my sin. I want to trust in your death, Lord Jesus, as the payment I deserve. Invite you to be my Lord and my Master. And surrender the rest of my life to you and your will and your word and your work. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying on the cross for me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And if you prayed that prayer, God knows the desire of your heart. It's not magic words. It's just what's in your heart. I invite you to just, you know, share it with me or uh, talk to me or tell somebody you care about. And the thing is, as, as we go through this life and as we think about how can we continue to remind ourselves of this rest? We, we do one thing in our church as we celebrate communion. And as we take these elements, what we're doing in, the, in taking these elements, they're the symbols of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf that remind us of the essential elements of the faith we embrace and the faith we enter into. And so as we take the bread as a symbol of his body broken and the cup as a symbol of his blood shed for us, we can know the comfort that we are forgiven. That even though your boss or your spouse or your neighbor or your children or your grandchildren or wherever, they may not think you're the greatest thing since sliced bread. They may not be forgiving or loving or encouraging. God has accepted you. We can have confidence that we're his children. He's got us. And we can be complete. We don't need anything. We are settled. We are secure. We are safe in Christ. And if you don't know Christ, now's the day to start that relationship and enter into his rest. If you're here this morning and you know Jesus is your Lord and Savior, uh, it doesn't matter what denominational label you go by or if you have one, you're invited to celebrate with us. Our practices, the praise team will lead in song and as the Spirit of God moves you in your heart, you come up, take some of the bread and the cup at the table and then make your way back quietly to your seats. Let's pray. Father, Take this bread and use this cup as reminders of your great grace.
For those of us who know you, God, help us not to take it for granted, but to use this as a reminder of the sacrifice you gave and then to rejoice in the blessedness of being your children. And those who don't know you, Lord, I pray that they would just uh, take this time, an opportunity to accept Christ who's offering salvation to them. We pray in Jesus' name.